0: Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor live stream. I am here with my good friend, Charlie Harrell tonight, and we have a fantastic lineup. I've noticed in the chat you're asking where everybody is. Charlie just informed me that tonight is the All-Star game, so it's just us small groupies here. <laughs> a lot mean, of basketball fan. fan. I am too, kind of, but... Yeah, so we're making a sacrifice for the kingdomless. (laughs) Uh, Let's go ahead and get this show on the road. Then I've got a couple of announcements, and then Charlie's going to share some of the most interesting ideas on wondering what was restored (laughs) that we've ever heard. So let's get this show on the road. I've got just a couple of quick things to say, and then we'll jump right into this, Charlie. How you been anyway?
1: How have I been? Yeah. Oh, I've been great. Um, I'm down in St. George this weekend, so enjoying the warm climate.
0: Nice. Please keep the warmth there, because I'm going to be there next weekend for Thrive, It's going to be my first Thrive I've attended. I know uh, Radio Free Mormon and Bill Rill are both speaking there, and they're going to be there. I'm looking forward to meeting everybody. Maven will be there. So I know that because I'm picking her up in Salt Lake City and taking her down from Salt Lake City to St. George. So we'll have a lot of fun down there. And, of course, I'm going to take a boatload of videos. So Uh, another thing I'd like to tell the audience real quick is, uh, I do have new videos up on my last Monday's escapade into Salt Lake City. Uh, it was the first time where I've seen the City Creek Mall. I spent the afternoon in Salt Lake City and I was invited for a premiere of the film of the return of Elder Pingree, an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. And I was able to chat with Steve Pinecker of Mormon Book Reviews and Rebecca Bibliotheca of Mormon-ish, and several other people. I I saw Maven there, and I, I met Lila, and so we had a great time. So I've got several videos up. I've got a few BYP response videos, and tonight I have once again my good friend Charlie Harrell, where we are basically going to talk about... Chapter 3, Joseph Smith and the Restoration. We're actually going through his book chapter by chapter. Charlie is being very gracious with this time, for which I'm very thankful and happy. This book, ha, that's a backyard professor move. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is my doctrine, the development of Mormon thinking. Uh I love this book because it is not full of polemics. It's 600 pages. It's thorough. It's not polemical. It's not it's not uh, bias. It, it's not and I know there's going to be people who say, yeah, yeah, well, that's funny, but it's it's not an argumentative book. It is exploratory. And it is analytical. And the thing I love about what Charlie has done in every chapter, you guys, is he goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the New Testament. He goes to the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon, early Mormonism, today's Mormonism. How has the church used the biblical scriptures to justify their doctrines or to interpret them, et cetera, And it is so awesome because you're getting a bird's eye view as well as a pinpoint detailed look. And I I don't know how you pulled that off still to this day, Charlie. But seriously, it's just it's a fantastic book. So let's get started on Joseph Smith and the Restoration. What did he restore, Charlie?
1: Very good question, right? So just for a little bit of context, uh, last time we talked about the great apostasy and the proof texts that uh, were used and are still used today to justify that there was a a great apostasy. And of course, what that means, did, did that mean initially in the church that there was just an apostasy from the pure doctrines of the Bible and of the New Testament and the gifts of the spirit? as even many Methodists and and other evangelicals claimed, and which is proclaimed in the Book of Mormon, or uh, was there an apostasy that forced a withdrawal of the priesthood from the earth and the true church organization, which is the narrative that gradually developed in the church. Mm -hmm. So today we have a similar kind of a problem with the restoration as you asked the question, what exactly was restored? And what was this restoration thing? Well, the restoration, the whole concept of a restoration was not new in uh, Joseph Smith's day, uh, beginning back in even the 16th century with the Anabaptists and other radical reformationists who said, we got to go more than just reform the church. We've got to restore the church back to its pristine purity um
0: and so, so they, they were talking restoration specifically weren't they yes yeah yeah they were mentioning it as that getting back to the early church of jesus that's right that, that's what they meant so so that wasn't really unique in joseph smith's day then. no not at all and in fact there were a
1: lot of different movements there were were the Restorationists, in fact, they were called the Restorationist Movement, or the um, the Restitutionist is the, the the term used in the King James Version of Acts 3, 19 to 21, that we'll talk about later, but uh, they were also called Primitivists, and most scholars just kind of use those terms interchangeably, the Restorationists, Primitivists, They were all about the same kind of thing of returning to primitive Christianity. The difference in the different within the movement was that some of them said, all we need to do is restore the Christian teachings of the New Testament. We need to return to the practical Christianity of the New Testament. Others said we need to reclaim the practices and doctrines of the New Testament. Others, that we have to return to the spiritual gifts that were practiced in the New Testament and enjoy those gifts again. Of course, the, the, new, the Book of Mormon talks about those aspects of restoration, but that's the extent of it. Um, but there were other restorations. There's a telltale clue right there, what we're looking at, isn't it? Exactly. So the Book of Mormon just picks up right in stride with evangelical thinking of the day and restorationist thinking, at least at that level. But there were other uh, primitivists who were saying we need to also return to the um, church organization that existed in the primitive church. So I see where Dan is talking about uh, Campbellism, which said, we need to return, uh, or we have the forms without the power, we need to return and put the power back into it. Yeah. Or Sidney Rigdon picked up on that same theme, and that's probably what drew him to the Book of Mormon is that he was excited that the Book of Mormon was preaching, we can't do away with the spiritual gifts. Right. Uh, But of course, Rigdon went uh, one step further and he wanted to return to um, the organization as well. He thought that, uh, that the apostleship and the order and communitarianism, that those were all aspects of the New Testament that had to be Restored and practiced again. So,
0: so Rigdon. Now, interestingly, in my apologetics time, I, I wasn't really hot into church history, and I am really jumping in it now. Uh, Dan, Dan Vogel's here, and he and I are going to do a series of uh, ideas in on priesthood in uh, Mormonism. But Rigdon, Rigdon actually was far more influential than. The church has, today's church I mean, has ever led us to actually believe. I just acquired this book by Richard Van Wagner. And I know it's an older book. Uh, All of you guys have probably read it. I have not. But uh, I've got another good friend who gets in the chat every now and then. I don't see him here yet. But he told me, man, do some stuff on Sidney Rigdon. So that's in the coming up works. And I think Dan and I will focus on Or or at least discuss him also, but you you have you have shown how Rigdon's influence uh, was quite impressive later on with some of the unique ideas in Mormonism, rather than just this Campbellism Protestant interpretation that was held at first and reflected in the Book of Mormon. So it's kind of fun. There's there's an actual build up and development that goes. Uh, with our hindsight, tell me if I'm saying this wrong, but from from our hindsight, looking back, we can see a buildup and development and evolution of the doctrine as it got more and more and more and more all-inclusive, yet less biblical. Is that fair to say?
1: You know, that's a very good point. Uh, In fact, I think early Mormonism was much closer to the way that most people and scholars would interpret the Bible than it was later in the Nauvoo period. And, uh, you know, when Joseph Smith started introducing a lot of these more esoteric kinds of doctrines, then he started um, appropriating scripture and uh mis- to
0: justify his innovations. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Interesting. So I noticed that Dan was saying that uh, Campbell rejected the gifts that
0: I was just getting ready to post that. I'm so glad Vogel's here, so yeah, that may
1: be right. Uh, I don't recall exactly, but I know that uh, he and Rigdon didn't see eye to eye. Yeah at least uh, that was one of the things that was very appealing to Rigdon was the gifts of the spirit and uh, the the authority and church organization. So with uh, this uh, Second Great Awakening, that's when restorationism or primitivism reached its uh, climax. Um, With, in fact, Campbell claimed to restore the ancient order of things. But there were many movements at the time uh, creating what they felt was a restoration of primitive christianity and many of them in fact i point out in the book that there were at least six that had the name of the church as the church of christ and they rejected creeds of religions which in fact again is exactly what the book of mormon
0: was doing it is yeah (laughs) interesting yeah, that was that was somewhat surprising to me. Uh, I, this has been a few years back, but when I uh, I can't remember if it's in uh, um oh, what's oh for Pete's sake the the big historian now Bushman Richard Bushman, Bushman, Bushman in his book Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism where he described uh, the idea that that uh, there were many different restoration movements occurring in Joseph Smith's time and era. Now, that's not what I taught on my mission. That's not what I was ever taught in my youth. So that was kind of a surprise to see. Well, there's there's more talk about this unique theme because I was taught this is unique. None of the churches even believed in restoration. And now we're discovering... Well, that's technically a misstatement at best. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I remember hearing in a conference talk where it was stated that no other church claimed to be the Church of Christ. There were these, at least they didn't have that name. And and as a matter of fact, they all claimed that they were the Church of Christ, but they just didn't have that as their proper name. Uh, But there were several churches called the Church of Christ. And yeah. uh, so it wasn't that that was anything unique, right? And and they rejected creeds and and uh, very similar to the kinds of beliefs that are espoused and promoted in the Book of Mormon.
0: Yeah.
1: So um, that's kind of the the milieu there at the time of Joseph Smith. So that when he came along, he fit right into that general lay of the land of restorationism. Uh, So what I do in chapter three is I'm interested in looking first of all, at the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith. How was the restoration through, specifically through the prophet Joseph Smith foreseen in biblical prophecies?
0: Or oh, was this will be good. This will be good. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, uh, what we're, as we look at a couple of these, they really fit the category that I talk about in chapter one, which is the concept of proof texting. That these are passages that, when looked at in their context and historical setting, had nothing to do with any kind of latter day uh work that was going on or anything to do with Joseph Smith.
0: Yeah. Now, really
1: it doesn't have to do with the latter days. The latter days is mentioned in ancient prophecies, but because they believed that they were living in the latter days. But it had no reference to modern day periods.
0: Which was still thousands of years yeah. off.
1: Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that that uh, just does not hold up as you look at the those passages that are cited. So um, the first two Old Tes- Testament passages that are taken as prophecies of Joseph Smith that I look at are in Isaiah 29, verses 4 and 12 specifically. Now we know that Isaiah 29 is the, the great chapter on the Book of Mormon, right? It talks all about the Book of Mormon.
0: I baptize people based on that concept, man.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. Working a wonder. Really he did. Restoration of the gospel. But specifically, verse four uh, talks about the inhabitants of Jerusalem who would be destroyed and who would speak out of the ground. And it says their voice would be, quote, as one that hath a familiar spirit, unquote. So. Couple things to note here: the the idea of a familiar spirit, as I'm sure your listeners know or are aware of, it's an archaic way of referring to a media uh, a medium or a necromancer who speaks for the dead, so or the dead speaks through them. Um, and so the whole idea of that uh, likening of the nation of Jerusalem to one that hath a familiar spirit was to say that their voice would be so um, low and hardly audible as a familiar spirit would be one speaking through a familiar spirit or possessed with this familiar spirit that uh, they would hardly be noticeable. And we've taken the Book of Mormon in particular looks at that Uh, idea. Now here's where the Book of Mormon at least gets this part of Isaiah correct. It recognizes that the familiar spirit is a medium talking in behalf of the dead or the dead talking through this medium. That medium being Joseph Smith. Uh Uh, So that's Uh where that uh,
0: comes. Making making it relevant to him. Uh Right.
1: So where initially this passage is referring to the nation of Jerusalem, nothing about uh, a Nephite people. And it's talking about ancient Jerusalem, not something that would happen in the latter days in modern times. And the metaphor is one that is trying to convey this idea that the nation of Jerusalem is is no longer audible. They're they're not of significance anymore. Um, but we've taken that we've literalized that to represent Joseph Smith, literally speaking, on behalf of mm. the ancient inhabitants, inhabitants of America, the Nephites,
0: the dead people.
1: Yeah. So instead of uh, this occurring contemporaneous with the demise of the nation of Jerusalem, the Book of Mormon has it occurring some 1,400 years later. So the Book (laughs) of Mormon gets neither the time, the place, nor the people, nor the metaphorical significance correct. It misses on all
0: counts. All counts, yeah. Uh, That's so interesting. But then... yeah. Every church was doing that with the Bible. Have we actually have we actually changed with the way we approach the Bible yet? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I, I'm I think, trying to take yeah, no, it. Yeah,
1: great, great question. And you wonder. It'd be interesting to do a study uh, in this particular verse. We've actually gotten worse, as I said. The Book of Mormon at least got the metaphor kind of correct.
0: Yeah. But now, we if, don't.
1: Yeah. If you listen to, and I've heard many teachers, commentaries, Book of Mormon commentaries, and even in general conference talk about this notion of a familiar spirit signifying that the Book of Mormon would have a familiar ring to it. You know, and so it totally misses the whole point of what the familiar spirit.
0: Um, what we've done is we've ignored the Hebrew context and brought on our own. Oh, hey, yeah, the well, the Book of Mormon sounds like the Bible. That's pretty familiar. Yes, yeah.
1: So we, we've got this simplistic colloquialization of biblical phraseology to mean something that is just. Totally hokey. So anyway, mm. moving on to the other uh, verse in that same chapter in verse twelve, where the Israelites are being condemned for their disobedience, and so God says, "You're you're totally out of touch, and you can no more discern the vision I'm trying to show you and teach you than an unlearned person." can understand a book because they don't know how to read or a learned person can understand the words of a sealed book because they're sealed. So they're that closed off to you. So here again, we've literalized that to be an actual book that would come forth in modern times. And and this isn't even a prophecy at all. It's just a declaration of the current situation of, of Israel. And yet here we've catapulted that whole thing into the latter times and had it be uh, Joseph Smith not being able to read the book because he's unlearned and you have the Charles Anton incident and how that was crafted to fit a literalization of this passage. So it's, it's
0: all messed up. Yeah, and this passage is actually a metaphor for for the ancient Israel, what was happening to them then. That's all it is. And we literalize that metaphor into a historical situation. Right, right? And, and into a prophetic,
1: you know, to happen
0: into the future,
1: where in context, it's just simply a, Uh, declaration of the current situation of Israel at that time.
0: Fascinating.
1: So again, the Book of Mormon gets it wrong on several levels, including the time, the place, and the analogical meaning of the passage. So it's just interesting how...
0: Well, the good news now is the church has surpassed the Book of Mormon in getting it all completely, totally wrong, thanks to Joseph Smith literalizing it. Right. (laughs) That's crazy, Charlie. <laughs> it's pretty, it gets pretty wild, doesn't it? Uh, am, am I extending that too far? I'm, I, I'm trying to be fair here, but there, it, it appears to me my, the way you broke this down is so awesome on page 51 and 52 of your book. Uh, <laughs> our literalization just completely wrecks everything. Yes,
1: yeah. And that was
0: Joseph Smith's tendency and
1: I think it was a tendency of you know the frontier religions to to kind of have that literalizing and to be interpreting the Bible as being fulfilled
0: through them in their time you know, yeah and it, and if those other groups were trying to literally yes. restore the Church of Christ that makes sense right. that everybody probably bent themselves to a more literal, Yeah, view. I mean, Sidney Rigdon really jumped on that one with the gifts, didn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I I noticed
1: that Dan said that some have argued that Nephi interpolated Isaiah 29, and that's exactly what's going on with scholars in the church today. They're recognizing that we are way off base to say that this is a prophecy, that Isaiah 29 is a prophecy of the Book of Mormon. They recognize it really has nothing to do with the Book of Mormon. And so they justify or rationalize the interpretation of Isaiah 29 as a prophecy of the Book of Mormon. That interpretation that is found in the Book of Mormon, they say, oh, that's just Nephi likening the scriptures
0: to themselves to themselves yeah well but that's what joseph smith did <laughs> he did he, he did the same thing well yeah that was me and martin harris and anthony and mitchell yes <laughs> yeah i had a i had colby townsend on a couple months ago and he was basically showing the same thing that in fact joseph smith didn't actually put this all together as an actual prophecy to tell Martin Harris about until way later. Yeah. 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 He had re read it later and made it look good. So mm-hmm. interesting. It is interesting. So um,
1: the question then is is that what Nephi was really doing? Was he simply liking it? Was he adapting the language of Isaiah? to fit his own prophecy, or was he actually interpreting Isaiah as a reference, as a prophecy of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon? And I point out in my book, I give three or four reasons why it just can't be an adaptation. It is, it was understood in the Book of Mormon by the angel Moroni when he explained it to Joseph Smith by Joseph Smith himself. You know, that's the way God explained it to Joseph Smith as the interpretation, the fulfillment of Isaiah 29, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. It's not just, uh, oh, we're just going to borrow this language from Isaiah 29 and create this prophecy of the Book of Mormon. So it's very problematic to try to say that uh, it's just an interpolation.
0: Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, the
1: same rationale, in fact, is used to argue that the Book of Mormon never claims that there were others in America, right? Book of Mormon doesn't say that. So, yeah, there were lots of people in the Americas. That's not precluded by the Book of Mormon, or that uh, the Book of Mormon never claims that the Book of Mormon geography covered North and South America. Or that the Lamanites were really cursed with a dark skin. You know that's not there. Uh, so I mean, once you, once you start
0: down that, you can do it with everything. Exactly, and yeah. so that's and they, they have they have done that with everything. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, crazy, huh? All right. So, moving on.
1: Um, Malachi three one is okay. a passage. Yeah. Um, Kerry, do you, do you want to read that? Do you have that handy there? Malachi
0: 3.1? I, I, yeah, I've got my Bible right here. I've got your book open, but shame on me. I'm I'm reading The Philosophy of Men Mingled with Scripture, not Scripture itself. <laughs> okay, hang on. It'll take me just one quick sec. That's three one, is isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, this is really... Uh, we are the only ones in the world who have been... I mean, the Jews just do an eye roll when we explain this okay behold I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in behold he shall come saith the Lord of hosts want me to read two also that's, that's good and of course this is before the one where we talk about
1: um Elijah coming to um, turn the hearts of the, uh, the fathers to the children, children to the fathers. Kind yeah, of- that's
0: not till 1836,
1: is it? Yes, right. Um, although it was referred to prior to that. Uh yeah. we'll get into it in another chapter. But here, um, we, we look at this and we think, okay, if God's going to send a messenger before the second coming, I, it, doesn't this just... Beautifully fit into the LDS narrative of, well, obviously that messenger has to be Joseph Smith. He's the one that the Lord sent to prepare the way for the second coming. But then, of course, in the New Testament, that messenger ends up being Elias. Elias and John the Baptist.
0: John the Baptist. Being the messenger before the
1: first coming.
0: Who, according to some biblical scholarship now, the way Jesus presented the Baptist when they asked, well, who, who is Elias and all? Jesus said, well, Elijah, Elias has already come. It was John the Baptist. Exactly. He came as a reincarnation of him, not as a... Not as a type and shadow, John the Baptist was understood to be Elias. Mm Kind of, that's one interpretation I've read. Yeah, yeah. that's one. We're talking for Yeah, that's right. right. 400 years later, not 2,400 years later. Right, right.
1: Uh, But of course, did it refer to any of that at all? Um, Scholars do suggest that this is the same messenger that is referred to later as uh, Elijah, who would come and return, uh, uh, not restore all things, but turn the hearts of the children of the fathers, fathers of children. The reason why it it says um, in the New Testament that Elias would come and restore all things is because uh, the Septuagint is being used there in Matthew, and the restore is really to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers. It's that same concept. But anyway, this, this is another passage that has been applied to Joseph Smith. And when I say applied, that's the interpretation. And here we get into the, that fascinating thing in Mormonism of the multiple fulfillment too, right? That prophecies have multiple fulfillment, not just that it can be adapted to multiple situations, but that it in fact had multiple situations in mind when it was uttered
0: that it would be fulfilled multiple times yes. into the future. I, I just watched uh uh, Mormon Stories podcast with John Delin and uh, Mike from LDS Discussions and he had Nemo on and he had Radio Free Mormon on as well on the backtracked prophecies and RFM made that point and and the point he made, and I hope I'm not stealing your thunder but RFM's in the audience so this will please him that I'm mentioning him in a good way he said uh, the trick with the reason why there seems to be a, a need for the double fulfillment is because the first one failed. There you go. And you go, oh wow, what a what a concept! So thank you, Radio Free Mormon. Yeah, I'm going to steal your idea and help Charlie out here. Yeah, oh, yeah. You don't
1: need it, but yeah, I oh, heard that. Yeah, I thought that was a classic, classic uh, comment about that. Um, and in some cases, uh, we do think that it was fulfilled. Like the one with John the Baptist, we say, "Oh yeah, that was fulfilled then," sure. but it's also fulfilled again with Joseph Smith. Literally, that's what Malachi saw. I'm not
0: family. going to be surprised if there's something happening so that we can say, "Look, it's again fulfilled three times with Russell M. Yeah, yeah, especially. especially I'm, I'm sincerely not trying to be mockery here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants so bad to have prophecy and revelation in the church right now. Uh, he, he's lowered the bar so low, which is unfortunate that anything can be a prophecy and a fulfillment now. And that's kind of why I bring that up. I mean, I, I did that response to Dallin Oaks uh, on the prophecy of Spencer W. Kimball. I put that up on a video today that just, Blow me! Oh, I said ah, That's not a prophecy, but Oak specifically mentions Russell M. Nelson really liked that concept because Brit Spencer W. Kimball prophesied. So I'm going to say that to show that prophecy is still here. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it just smacks of desperation, as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, yeah, it makes me so skeptical. But yeah,
1: and <laughs> you know my my main. Purpose in critiquing these kinds of, of interpretations isn't to say the church is is false, the church is you know completely out to lunch. It's to say, let's just acknowledge, like what LDS scholars are doing today, more and more, acknowledging what the Bible is actually saying, and say it's fine. You know, we need to adjust our narrative, and that's fine. We can do that. We've done it before. Right. Let's do it again so that it at least comes in line with with scholarly,
0: you know, what, what current biblical scholarship is showing us. Yeah, you guys, the church is not completely out to lunch. It's only 95% out to lunch, so calm down. Just the interpretations. Right. Right. <laughs>
1: okay there well, are several yeah. other um old testament prophecies i'm not going to spend a lot of time on isaiah 11 1, about the branch the stem of jesse you know the rod coming out of the stem a branch growing out of the roots uh of course that's just all turned around it's even in the in the doctrine and covenants doctrine it's interpreted covenant. in this real convoluted way that gets joseph smith into the picture again as one of the fulfillments of that um, symbolism that's being presented there. Uh, And yet it's just so far away from what the contextual and scholarly interpretation is of that passage that it just is nonsense. Two others that just to touch on briefly because they're so related in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18.15, where it talks about the Lord would raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Um, and then Isaiah 52.13-14, which speaks of the Lord's servant who would be exalted and extolled, though his visage was marred okay both of those passages have been interpreted and you know been acknowledged in christianity as being direct references to christ to christ right the new testament even interprets it that way yeah the book of mormon also interprets them that way but then there are additional interpretations given that kind of squeeze Joseph Smith in there as a fulfillment of the prophecy as well. So once again, we've got dual fulfillment on both of these prophecies where traditionally they've been understood to refer to Christ. And of course, in its historical context, neither one of them had reference to the future messiah of christ they were just references to uh prophets that would follow on moses on you know uh, follow uh, be his successors right. and then of course isaiah 52 is generally considered to be uh, the nation of israel as a whole. nation well, yeah
0: that would be the main jewish exegesis Yes, that To an individual that, This is one area where the Jews really are Specific, Rabbi Singer is on YouTube all over the place saying Uh uh-uh. uh, you Christians have Blown all of this way out wrong I watched uh, him on uh, Derek Lambert's Myth Vision Where he just wiped out The Christian prophecies in the New Testament From the Old Testament So we Mormons are twice Removed from not only have we got the Jewish context strong by putting in Joseph Smith on the Mormon context, everybody's rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> They're saying, "You guys, no. you are whacked way out there in left field, man." No. So, it's- yeah, yeah, but you know, you mentioned something. It's kind of nice to know that there there are some LDS scholars who uh, appear to begin saying. OK, uh, let's slow down here. Let's take another look because we're we're getting caught with our pants down, man. This right. is not a good look for us. We really do have to let the Bible be the Bible here and quit trying to, you know, bring it all so much into our day all the time in order to give a validity. And yet, uh, they are talking about a restoration of what was had, before. Yeah. So this gets sticky because of that particular stance, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And when you say they're talking about that, there's also a new discourse about restoration that has emerged in the last decade or so, which is restoration not as a Recovery of something that was lost or that existed before, but more as a refurbishment of what we have. So, in other words, this is you know the Givens concept of Joseph Smith being an eclectic uh sort of restorationist individual, where he took from his surrounding elements, pieced them together and crafted a restoration or what was as good as what he could recognize as a reproduction of early Christianity.
0: Well, that just sounds like all the Protestant sects of his day, doesn't it? Yes, (laughs) right. Right that's what they were doing yeah. i mean dan vogel has uh is probably smiling big right now so is d michael quinn in his grave now granted you just made Hugh nibbly roll over congratulations in his yeah. grave but yeah i mean that direction it just appears to me that almost becomes inevitable at this point yeah it just does yeah <laughs> it's it's pretty wild
1: um So, and then as you point out, it's um, these prophecies, scholars are recognizing these prophecies, many of which are not prophecies at all, but are just simply pronouncements about a situation that was in their day. um, A lot of the way that, or, or one of the ways that a lot of scholars are Explaining that is through the use of the term application or adaptation, that it's not really a fulfillment, but we can apply the suffering servant sermon in Isaiah. We can apply that to Christ. We could apply that to Joseph Smith, even though that may not have been the historical sense or intent. Of the passage, so again you shift the discourse a little bit, and you're satisfying the critics, but it
0: it is not. uh, It still feels slippery a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, bless his heart, he's given it his best shot. I get it. I I do, and I'm actually beginning to like him a little more than I used to, but. Uh, our friend Terrell Givens in *The Pearl of Greatest Price*, his theme of bricolage comes to bricolage mind. Bricolage is another one, right? Yeah. And and he's doing that with the Book of Abraham and you know. But yeah. if, if with what you're saying, uh, to your point, you do that with the Bible, uh, you do that with *Price*, you do that with prophecies. I mean. Where does that stop? Is that prophecy, and is that how a prophet functions, or is this creativity right. going on?
1: Yep. Yeah, and and there's actually uh, you know, the the problem here is you've got the claim. The claim is this is a restoration. This was brought back to Earth. Yeah, right? yeah. it was. You know, uh, let's let's clear the the playing field here and let's bring back the pure thing that existed. Yeah. Um, so you got that claim that's been going on, that's been the narrative in the church from the beginning with you've got the claim um, that is coming up against the reality, the reality, the historical reality, if we look at what Joseph Smith was actually doing, not what he claimed to be doing or what he thought he was doing, but what he was actually doing is very obviously a refurbishment. He was kind of grabbing pieces here and there, crafting a, like you say, his very creatively. And, you know, I'm not, saying there was no inspiration involved, there could be lots of inspiration, but it was not a bringing back of something that was lost. It was crafting out of existing ideas, beliefs, practices, cultural ideologies, a new religion.
0: And is not that the basis of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible utilizing Adam Clark's commentary? Yeah, or or another example, uh, and John Twetness from Farms showed me this. In fact, he gave he got me the articles on the theme of baptism for the dead. You know the famous First, first Corinthians fifteen twenty nine, yeah. and yet, rather than a restoration of a practice of a an ordinance under the Melchizedek priesthood occurring in the Jerusalem Temple, you look, you can't do that, man. (laughs) That is pure eisegesis. That is just reading your later doctrine back into the Jerusalem temple. We That just doesn't cut the mustard. So this is what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, exactly. Good point.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. The last one from the Old Testament is one that isn't there, that Joseph Smith put there. So here, when uh, RFM talks about uh, writing yourself back into, you know, uh, backdating prophecies,
0: uh, Mm -hmm.
1: this is one Joseph Smith put in that was in the Book of Mormon. It's the prophecy of Joseph of old, who says that there will be a latter-day Joseph, right? who would be named after his father, who would also be Joseph, you know, to put that prophecy into the mouth of Joseph of old, who lived how many millennia ago? Yeah. To say that, yeah, he saw Joseph Smith. And it came through the
0: Book of Mormon.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that was a pretty bold move for him to put that back into uh, the JST, we're talking about, Genesis 50, 26 to 32. So wow. uh, like you say, the the uh, the JST was obviously more than Adam Clark. It was Joseph Smith taking from places all over the place, including adding his own creativity to the text to create the kind of Bible that he would have wished the Bible was, to fit and to suit his oh, what a great
0: way to put it! Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, he's yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, dang it, I want to be important. I want to be the man to restore this. So that means I have to have been in those ancient texts. And check this out: it happens to be in the Book of Mormon. So it's got to be in the Bible. Yeah. Now, maybe Joseph Smith didn't emphasize that as much as his followers. I'm not sure. I personally have not studied that angle, but it is in early Mormonism. It has to be because I was taught that in cemetery class or seminary class, and that was 1976 to 1979. So I know that's been in modern Mormonism. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the trial of the stick of Joseph, Jack West. Oh yeah. How many of us missionaries took that as psalmist dot materials under our lapels into our mission so that we could use it? Yeah, that was pretty popular at the time. Oh, it it was it was the go to source for scripture study. Yeah.
1: Back in the day.
0: (laughs) So that closes out the
1: old testament. Just briefly from the New Testament, there's no prophecy or passage in the New Testament that speaks specifically of Joseph Smith. Of course, oh, wasn't in the, it wasn't in the Old Testament either, but Joseph Smith conveniently inserted himself into a New Testament text as well. And this really? is Matthew 24, 14. Which says, "And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Of course, we know in the JST, that's modified to say uh, that the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached again, because there had to be this restoration and second period of gospel proclamation, right? Right. Even though that's not what was in Matthew, he just envisioned the gospel being preached to all the world as it was progressing at the time. All right. But then Joseph Smith in Nauvoo said that the passage should be should read, "quote The Lord in the last days would commit the keys of the priesthood to a witness over all people." <laughs> so instead of preaching the gospel as a witness, That's the, class the be the keys are going to be committed to a So he completely...
0: Just one little word. Isn't that astonishing? I have never noticed that detail. Yep. Now now you're saying this is in the JST? No, it's not. It's in a
1: sermon in uh, Nauvoo where he talked about... um, he, He made that statement, gave that interpretation... And, of course, this is when he was trying to bolster his authority. Another time he was trying to bolster his authority and show that I am that witness. Matthew saw me, Um, or or Christ prophesied of
0: me in Matthew. You know, there comes a point, Charlie, where you go, that, that is just... I, I'm trying hard not to get in trouble here with the YouTube authorities, but I mean, that takes balls of brass, doesn't it? I, come on, that is so brazen. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, it, yeah, it, it just kind of shocks you that Joseph Smith thinks he can do that and get away with it, for one thing. Because I know the Greek is not going to agree with that. I, I don't even have to look up the Greek to know. it's not, and, and the Greek word four does not mean the Greek word two. I guarantee you those two are going to be different, right? Yep. I'd, I'd stake my life on that without even knowing what those words are yet. But right. isn't that astonishing that he, that, look, if Mary Baker Eddy would have done that, I mean, okay, here's a better example. Do not the Jehovah's Witnesses exactly do crap like that in the New Testament? And do we not kick them in the teeth for it? Yeah. John 1 and 1 is one of my examples. Hmm. Ah, fascinating. Wow.
1: It's amazing. Um, so, again,
0: yeah. to see that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I'd like to do now is just move on to so these are prophecies that are not prophecies of Joseph Smith that are not of not Joseph Smith. Smith.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my.
1: That are in the Bible. And this you know, is an crazy. crazy. And you know that that's part of the the magic of Mormonism, right? That, that there's something about it to, to feel like Wow, the Bible talks about Joseph Smith. He's mentioned in the Bible, just like he's mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Of course, we're not talking, we're not looking at Book of Mormon passages, which refer pretty explicitly to Joseph Smith, but you know, he was careful to insert his his name. there There is
0: on my on my mission, there is a I'm going to look it up real quick in the biblical topical guide. There is an Isaiah passage uh, that we used on my mission. And I had a zone leader point this out to me. And he said, you know, when, when people tell you that Joseph Smith is not in the Bible. Oh, and it's not going to mention it. And I don't have it written down. It talks about something about the Smith." Will do something, or other. <laughs> really? And he said that is Joseph Smith's specific name. Oh, oh. Well, of course, it was a metal Smith. It was oh. metallurgy. The goddamn. Wow. Wow. This guy was that determined to find a prophecy. And wow. I promise, it's you. You keep talking. It's so ridiculous. I'm gonna go get it out of Strong's Concordance. You keep talking. I'll be right back. Okay, I promise.
1: okay. that's fine. Yeah. The naivete of uh, I told you I'm back. The membership is amazing. To oh,
0: oh, it's amazing the mental gymnastics
1: to this stuff. Yeah.
0: Now, doesn't that also make us think? Yeah, you, you know, if you're that desperate, I, I mean, if you're that determined, which leads you to that desperation. That kind of desperation. Any other religion trying to do this with so many disparate, odd and end uh scriptures scattered throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Mormons would just, there's no way you're going to accept that. Mm-hmm. On any other religion score.
1: That's
0: right. So if if you're gonna try to be fair, you, you simply have to say, uh, we need to look at this again. That, that's what I call Mormonizing the Bible that's what I've been preaching oh, yeah. against since I quit being an apologist that was my problem as an apologist yeah. so
1: yeah, I'm yeah. Just, it's like uh, Christians have Christianized the old here Testament. We
0: go. Yeah. Isaiah 44 Oh, I'm going to read this to you because it's amazing and I, I'm embarrassed as hell to say this but I did use this on my mission Ones. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, I really did. I really did. Isaiah forty four twelve. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals. The tongs were the scriptures, the coals were the people. So he metaphors he he, he literalizes the smith and metaphors everything else. I mean, come on, that's nice. That, in, mm. I agree. Yeah, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Joseph Smith has strong arms; he could stick pull anybody up. I mean, I'm proving to you, Joseph Smith, right here, pal. Oh yeah, just just Yeah, he is hungry. Yeah, how many times did Joseph Smith go hungry? Yeah. His, a, yeah. yeah, it's definitely Joseph Smith. Yeah, there you go.
1: How can it be anything different?
0: Okay, star. all right. We, Thanks we for a little bit
1: of fun. No, that's that is hilarious. And it's <laughs> sad at the same time. <laughs> no, it is. Okay. In the New Testament, I, I wanted to just touch on two ideas that come out of the New Testament that have been really powerful passages and phrases used in the church throughout the, the history of the church. One is from Ephesians 1.10 which refers to the dispensation of the fullness of times. We're all familiar with that, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So the interesting thing here is we um, take that idea, just the term dispensation. Again, we we don't really try to dig in and find out what was the underlying Greek or what do Bible commentators or scholars say about this dispensation? What are, are, what are alternative translations? What do they say about that? The, the LDS Bible Dictionary defines a dispensation as a period of time when the Lord has at least one servant on the earth who holds the keys of the priesthood and is authorized to administer the gospel. We're okay. all familiar with that concept—a right. dispensation. It's a, it's an epoch, a period of time. Um, and so the LDS interpretation of this prophecy is that it is talking about a future period or dispensation in which all truths, powers, blessings—you know, keys and everything—yeah, don't forget Lord, keys.
0: Yeah, that
1: have ever been on the earth in any preceding period of time or dispensation okay now scholars tell us to the contrary that a dispensation has nothing to do with a period of time it is not a period of time or an epoch a common but erroneous use of the word but rather it is a mode of dealing an arrangement or administration of affairs. So the underlying Greek is oikonomia, from which we get the word economy. Which now, where is, are you getting that from, Charlie? That's the that's the the Greek
0: translation of um, 110. That's in my book too. In the chat. yeah, I, I was just asking in case you're reading it, It's on page 59 of your book, but it's one of my very very favorite. Uh, Commentary uh, uh, analysis of Greek words that's out of Vines Expository. Yeah, yeah. Vines Expository. Those of you who want to get into really superb Greek information, go to Vines. He's good. He's he's real good. It's a little bit older, but he's real good. It is older, but I was was happy to see that you were going to that. That's why I brought that up. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. So that is from from him. So uh, how did Joseph Smith get uh, from this theme of dispensation to the one he's gotten to? Do we know? So as Vine's
1: expository uh, dictionary explains, that a common but erroneous use of the word is a period of time. It it was a common, that's the
0: the popular,
1: popular way of thinking about it. How do we get to think that way in the church today? Uh, So there was the the guy that developed dispensationalism that really formalized it was a guy named John Nelson Darby, who by 1830 and early 1830s had articulated this idea of seven dispensations or periods of time. You mean even that wasn't Joseph Smith? No, no, no. That's been around. So Joseph Smith, just he was a sponge, right? He just (laughs) picked that stuff up. Um, So that was just a very lay person's understanding of dispensation without being critical or understanding, you know, reading the Greek and trying to understand what the passage is actually saying.
0: Fascinating. Absolutely oh. fascinating. Well, that that really undercuts uh, an anchor here. Oh, yeah. Th- this is pretty serious. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what we say. This is the this is, yeah. of the of time. This is bigger than the Old Testament prophecies not being Old Testament prophecies, from my opinion. Yeah. This is huge. I think it is. I agree. So, um the
1: uh for for paul uh and we're not sure you know if he wrote ephesians or not but at least this is his okay. tradition right. but in his epistles and in the pauline literature there were two dispensations or ways in which god dealt with Earth, israel, right? israel and his people One was the Mosaic dispensation, and the other was the dispensation of Christ. And those were the two, uh, what what Paul called the dispensation of grace. So we don't have the law, we're not under the dispensation of the way of governance of the law. That was the old way God dealt with his people, the old economy, we're under this new economy now that began with Christ's advent called the dispensation or the economy of grace. So it has nothing to do with periods of time. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. And it's not a prophecy. It's not a prophecy either of a future time, but a declaration that the we are in. The current. Yeah, this is it. This, this is it. it. We are in the dispensation, dispensation of the fullness of times.
0: This is it. The grace period. That's right. So so see that, that ties in pretty good, doesn't it? Don't you think? With uh Paul thinking that uh the second coming is just right around the corner. Exactly. I mean, it's so close, don't even bother getting married. No, don't go buy a house and don't ever think about building a billion dollar mall in Jerusalem. Yeah. Because that won't work. Yeah. And that's why he's telling people don't even bother getting married. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah,
1: yeah. That, because the this current way of, of the world is gonna be changing here very soon. Okay, so any other questions, comments on that one, Carrie, or uh or
0: no, know? you're really you're really uh you're really giving us some great stuff here. No, keep going.
1: The, one more, the last one, which okay. is my favorite. Uh, the restoration or the restitution of all things. Oh, that's got to be Acts. Acts 3, 19 to 21. Yeah. We all recognize that from as
0: missionaries and uh, preach Remember that. when Jack Welch from Farms did that big Ensign article? on the various words of rest of, of the, of the restoration within Mormonism. And he made a big, it was an ensign 1994 or five or whatever, when farms was at their peak, he did a huge study on this acts three. Interesting. I don't remember that. I'll have to. Yeah. Yeah. If you can, I, I can't remember what, which ensign it was in, but I I still have it somewhere. It's in my notes. somewhere. Okay. We'll post uh, it in the notes. Yeah, yeah, but he, he actually got it published in the it. So. Interesting.
1: Interesting. Um, so we're all familiar with re- repent, Paul says, or Peter says, repent ye therefore, be converted that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which was before preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the times of the restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So it's so there you have it, Charlie. So major, all the prop. This is what they talked about. This all is Mormonism, our- Mormonism right here. Exactly. They all saw it. They all prophesied of our day when all things would be restored. Of course, with the ongoing restoration, all things haven't
0: been restored yet. So we're... Backpedaling a little bit. We're chugging along. Right. Line upon line, precept by precept, you know. Yes, right. That, that other mistranslation from the Bible the Mormons love to use. Right. <laughs> wow. They can't win, can they? <laughs> it's either mistranslated or misinterpreted. Holy cow. So oh. well, we can say we we believe in Mormonism as long as it as it is translated and interpreted correctly. As as long as it is translated and interpreted the way that we
1: say it should be, right? We've got a a closed circle here,
0: closed circular reasoning. Yeah, I call that inbred scholarship in Mormonism. Truly, and and this is what
1: drives non LDS scholars crazy at scholarly conferences, biblical conferences, you know, Society of Biblical Literature when they get this kind of closed LDS view of the scripture in their talking to them, you just cannot, they, they just say, wow, we just cannot
0: talk to these people this way. Again, that's Robert, Robert Rittner mentioned that about John Gee's materials in the the discussion with uh, on on Mormon stories, he said when when John and Radio Free Mormon again, he's everywhere. He's awesome, man. Don't tell him I said that; it'll swell his fat head. I'll tell him next weekend. at Thrive, but uh, Rittner actually told John, he said, uh, "No Egyptologist is going to give any LDS Egyptologist one second of their time when it comes to this Book of Abraham there and, and the papyri." The, not one second because we know you guys just don't see it the way it's supposed to be. You can't, you can't, you're, you're, you're carefully groomed down a particular trail that you have to follow. And it is not the Egyptological trail from my take on this tonight. You're saying the same thing appears to be with the biblical trail.
1: That's right. Yeah, I'm
0: not. I'm not often saying that, am I? Yeah, yeah. And
1: yeah. and I I do not want to generalize here. I know. Oh, no,
0: I love your specifics.
1: I know this... the, the current faculty at BYU. They are very well educated, uh, very informed on biblical scholarship. They understand. They know the Bible. Uh, it's it's the tradition that we have. The culture that we have developed and ingrained ourselves into. As you say, we're, we're kind of in a rut and we can't, no matter, it's going to take a long time, several generations to get out of that rut. And, uh, but we're moving there slowly. It's just very slow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Back to this restoration of all things. What What's interesting about this is, in context and the way scholars explain this and it's very obvious if you read it the the verses before and after that it's talking about redemption the restoration the restitution of all things from the ravages of sin in other words we're going back to you know the the edenic edenic state of the earth that we're going to be restored um Christ is going to cleanse the world from sin, right? And restore all things back to holiness and pureness, okay? That's the general notion of of what this passage is all about. Now, at the time of Joseph Smith, there are several strands of interpretation of this passage. One One of them is the one that I just mentioned that is, kind of the, the straightforward meaning of it. But the other one is what restorationists adopted, which is that the restoration of all things is the restoration of primitive Christianity, largely, although yeah. it also encompass the restoration of the earth and of all humankind. Um, but, but Joseph Smith didn't pick up on that, and that doesn't appear in the Book of Mormon, that kind of restoration. The restoration spoken of in early Mormonism is the one that um, he picks up the, the discourse between universalists and anti-universalists. And Dan Vogel, by the way, has written really some excellent material on universalism or anti-universalism in the book of Mormon. Wow. So what's going on here is Alma is telling his son Corianton that don't think that because it's been said that you're going to be restored, that you're going to be restored, that there's a restoration that you're going to be restored from wickedness to happiness. Um, or from wickedness to holiness. You know, that doesn't happen. This is exactly what universalists were promoting at the time of Joseph Smith. This is the one of the this is the, the dialectic that the Book of Mormon reflects um, that that debate between evangelicals or anti-universalists and universalists.
0: Universalists, yeah.
1: Universalists were saying that it is clear from Acts 3 that it's the restoration of all things. That means everybody is going to be restored in the end at Judgment Day, in the resurrection, to holiness and happiness. That's the fundamental universalist
0: it is too, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it is. Anti-universalists were pushing back and saying, "No, that's not it." Otherwise, where's agency? Where's where's judgment? Where's heaven and hell? How does that fit in? So, yes. the Book of Mormon, uh, in that narrative of Alma to Corianton, Alma is saying that no, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be restored to holiness and happiness. It only means that. Everything is going to be restored to its proper order. And interestingly, this is you find that same um, argument against universalism in discourses in Joseph Smith's day.
0: Um, well, well, no wait a minute, this just shows that the ancient Mesoamericans 300 BC or whatever had Universalists with them. That is correct. Obviously, they would... Alma represents the Mormons, Charlie. Come on. That's right. That's and, right. Yeah, I'm
1: just saying. <laughs> and isn't that one of the, the funny things that makes no sense that apologists will say, well, they saw our day. Mormons right. said, I, you, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I see your day. I know your doings. And so they obviously speak in language that fits our day. But you can't say, you can't put that kind of dialogue into uh, a Jewish prophet living in 600 BC. That wasn't their discourse.
0: That wasn't their culture to talk about that. Yeah, it's like Sandra Tanner told me the other day, just remember folks, horses are not tapirs. There you go. Yep. Does not work. Does not work.
1: So the interesting thing here is the Book of Mormon only talks about a restoration of Israel. Okay, that's all they talk about. The Book of Mormon talks about. And no priesthood. No priesthood. No restoration of a priesthood. Okay. No restoration of a church. What but No restoration of a church or kingdom. Okay. Only the restoration of Israel and implicitly a restoration of gifts in the sense that you people in the last days are ignoring the gifts. Don't do that. Uh, So it implies that maybe those will be turning up again. Mm-hmm. And it talks about a restoration, implicitly, uh, restoration of biblical teachings, right? That were lost, a plain and precious truth. Yeah, yeah, lost from the Bible.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, and i right. talk
1: about that in the subsequent chapter. But right. in terms of a restoration of all things, it mentions twice in Alma, I think that's Alma 41, where it talks about uh, that, uh, what we just Mention that interpretation from Alma to Korhor, and he says twice. He he first of all admonishes Korhor not to rest. Some have rested
0: the scriptures, supposing
1: yeah. the restoration of all things to mean a restoration Hopefully. of yeah. all from holiness to happiness.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. I remember and that. That's
1: exactly the argument that the anti-universalists were making in Joseph Smith's day. They were saying that universalists are resting the scripture, the exact phrase that Uh, they they use. They're wrong. And then Alma at the beginning and at the end emphasizes, he emphasizes twice that the restoration of all things spoken of by the mouth of the holy prophets, obviously referring to Acts 3, you know, even though, they're not supposed to know about Acts 3, right? Right. But right. it's obvious that he's referring to that, that it does not refer to a restoration of everyone, but only a restoration of the physical body, right? To perfection. Yeah. The spirit is not going to be restored to holiness and happiness unless they repent and so on. hmm So... It's interesting that in after the restoration of the church, after the church is organized, I should say, because they weren't uh, contemplating a restoration of the church at the time, but after the publication of the Book of Mormon, you never hear of the restoration of all things being an anti-universalist polemic. Um, it just vanishes. Instead, all the references for almost the the entire first decade of the church in the 1830s, refers to this restoration of all things, meaning earth, and um, uh, it it takes it very general. It doesn't talk about the wicked being restored to perfection and holiness, but it basically looks at um, the restoration of the earth to its Edenic state, so the paradisiacal glory of Eden, okay? That's the restoration that Joseph Smith preaches, Parley Pratt and Voice of Warning. They said the restoration of all things, they interpreted it, Acts 3, 19 to 21, as being a restoration of the earth and all creation to its pristine perfection. Hmm. So it isn't until the 1930s <laughs> that you start to see a this other strand of restorationism that I talked about that existed in Joseph Smith's day that seems to have been probably instigated by Rigdon and his emphasis on authority and priesthood that uh, we have to work this restoration of authority into the narrative, because that's important. And so that's when the priesthood narratives uh, or restoration narratives really begin in the mid 1830s.
0: Well, 18, yeah, they really take on special emphasis if I remember my chronology right in the 1838 history joseph smith that that's where he starts putting in all the nitty-gritty details yeah yeah, yeah. i think yeah. the
1: first mention is 1835 you know dan yes. yes. has to-
0: it is and then it's developed magnificently in the 1838 yeah. but that's because by that time so many of his followers who were the earlier witnesses of what was going on were excommunicated and he had sent missionaries to Britain, and the Britain saints were coming over, and Joseph Smith was using them to fill in all the church offices for yeah. a while. Yeah, yeah by them, McClellan was out, and Whitmer was gone, Oliver Cowdery with that dirty, nasty little affair that he saw with Joseph Smith, he was gone. So nobody could check Joseph Smith. that That's my generalized understanding, but yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. So... On. There were shifted again yeah. into a more specific priesthood thing then. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it was, it was
1: almost exclusively, and, and there are just dozens of quotes by Joseph Smith, all of his associates, that the restoration of all things spoken of in Acts refers to the restoration of the earth to its paradisiacal glory. Yeah. It's not restoration of a church. Of the gospel of now obviously they would envision that that's going to be there when the earth is restored and everything's pure that christ is going to rule and reign on the earth but that was not the the teaching at the time so we've shifted interpretation dramatically so,
0: Do you think maybe he he began emphasizing the paradisiacal uh, aspect of the earth all because he was trying to keep it in people's minds of the uh, new Jerusalem in Missouri, Adam on diamond and all that? Maybe I don't know. I'm just throwing something out there. Not sure how that how that I I yeah.
1: All right, but very possibly. So, conclusion, there are no actual prophecies in either the Old Testament, the New Testament, and for that matter, even the Book of Mormon, that speak of a latter-day restoration of a church and priesthood, or, uh, uh, now I I have to exclude the, the Book of Mormon here, because there are no, I can say there are no prophecies really in the Bible that, talk of joseph smith but clearly there are in the book of mormon because he put them there yeah um but any allusion also to a restoration of all things or to a final dispensation um, dispensation of the fullness of times both of those phrases have reference to something entirely different from what the current lds understanding is So I do applaud, though, I got to emphasize again, I applaud scholars in the church who are leading out by at least acknowledging uh, this fact that those are not prophecies of Joseph Smith and the restoration of all things and dispensation of fullness of times refers to something entirely different. Uh, And I'm just hoping that that will help steer the church in a more defensible way. reasonable informed
0: direction. Yeah. That yeah that's awesome. I, I i actually uh have a a good friend the BYU uh scholar Trevin Hatch. Yeah who, who is taking this direction into more of the Jewish manner of understanding Jesus. So perhaps he might be part of that overall general trend of saying let let's get let's let the yeah. texts say and mean what the texts say and mean instead of yeah. saying Jesus was a Mormon you know right. that's as silly as the Christian saying yeah well Jesus was obviously a Christian you mm-hmm. know yeah. so it's yeah. like the Christian lady saying well if the King James language is good enough for Jesus it's good enough for me because <laughs> it's in the Bible uh, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> right. you go oh, okay well He's spoke know. King James English right <laughs> So yeah, oh man, Charlie, th- this has been so much fun for me. Uh quite a quite a fun uh man, we could count this as a late night Sunday school as far we we'll call it the Fireside. I was calling it the Sunday night fireside. So but yeah, yeah. Hey you guys in the audience, I know you've been completely ignoring us and talking Shakespeare half the night. Yeah, that that's all right. They'll they'll come back and watch the video. But uh, do you have any questions other than Shakespeare questions for Charlie that you'd like to ask? <laughs> and I know why you've gone to Shakespeare R F M. R F M, he thinks and talks in Shakespearean. He uh, does. I mean, the man is an animal. That's how he is. So don't tell him I said that. If you don't have any. Uh, if you don't have any questions here in just a couple of minutes, Charlie. Oh, he has a prior question. What was it, Doug? Or if Emmy says, had a prior question. How it's did D- How did DNC eighty 87- seven? Oh, hey, my good friend Mark Schultz. Welcome, my friend. Good to see you here. How did DNC eighty seven get backdated? Proof. Well, oh, that's the uh, DNC eighty seven.
1: Is that the one of the uh, the wheat and the tares?
0: The new I'm looking right now. I got my D and C handy. Revelation given on war. Oh yeah, the section was the brethren were reasoning upon African slavery and slavery of the children men throughout the world. Yeah, this is the great uh, war prophecy, the Civil War. Oh, that's the war prophecy. Yeah, the Northern states and the Southern states and all that. So that may not be a question to you, Charlie. Maybe he's asking it from someone else. Oh, yeah. But, but you know, that was just, that
1: was given at the time. It was just, they held on to it. It wasn't published for a long time. Oh, uh, I'm not sure that was necessarily backdated as it was. Held on to. Post, post-fulfillment published. Almost.
0: Yeah, it was a few years later that it happened, wasn't it? You but, know.
1: but the problem with that is that most of the stuff that it talks about in Section 87 never materialized. So a war did break out, but it didn't break out in the way that it says it was going to. It didn't pull in all of the nation's of the earth well, it did later
0: in World War One, you skeptic. Right. And it didn't <laughs> didn't terminate in, you know,
1: the, the total destruction and Armageddon. Yeah. Um,
0: right. Yeah. And the Lamanites didn't get blossom as a rose.
1: Oh. As it says in it.
0: First published when, he's asking. Uh, well, it says the Revelation and Prophecy was given December 25th, 1832. Yeah. So when was it first published? It wasn't published for quite a few years uh, after, was it? Yeah, yeah. If I don't have any of my history books with me, Mark. Yeah, you could go to
1: the uh, Joseph Smith Papers Project site, and they'll tell you the whole history behind
0: it. Yeah, that's true.
1: But it was not in the, the original Doctrine and when it could have been published, you know, 1833,
0: right. 35. Um, Here, here's a question. What's the take on ongoing restoration? You, you mentioned that earlier. Would you explain that a little bit more to, in today's church? Why are they going that direction?
1: yeah i you know what what used to be called restoration had reference to the major events of bringing back the church right of we got to get the keys back on the earth we got to get the church organized with its basic offices of apostles and prophets and so on Um, but now what we call restoration are these little tweaks, fine tuning things that they would have previously just called, Hey, we're we're making a policy change, right? We're we're shifting the way we do things slightly, um, and would not have called it a restoration that didn't fit into that uh, definition of, of, uh, restoration so that's the that's what's going on now nothing is being restored things are just being tweaked fine-tuned policies or a new program here or there or uh, a woman gets to offer a prayer for something in general conference
0: and that's that's oh, and hey, that's by huge. the way, in, that in, is huge in state conference's second meeting. Now, the women now have the authority to play with that little stand button to raise the stand higher. Oh, yes, to back, yeah, don't forget, that's been restored. that's critically important to seeing the Book of Mormon is the most correct book, right? Don't ask me how it has something to do with reformed Egyptians somewhere down the road, yeah. So uh Dan was saying it was first published in 1851 in the oh, World, World Great Price. Uh, oh, CRFM's question on Messiah Ben Joseph. I, I can't look back and see that far, Doug. Sorry. Hold on. I'm looking. And I love you too, Mark Schultz. You're awesome, dude. Don't argue with me. Uh Yeah, he said, uh Dan says it wasn't published in 1835, probably because the nullificate cra- the nullification crisis of 1832 passed. I mean, and I saw his comment earlier that they were afraid that uh, it, things were going to go bad in 1832. Yeah, it was, it was,
1: the writing was on the wall, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah that, knew that, that we were heading towards a crisis. Right. At that time. So, yeah, so it was published before the civil war. Um, I can't remember when it became part of the Doctrine and Covenants. Was it um, in 79 or later? But anyway, the history is interesting. But the, the point is, that was there in 1832. It was written. But um, the big question is, was that really fulfilled the way that, Right. You know, if you take it at face value, what it's saying, was it fulfilled the way that it describes?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And here's RFM's question that has nothing to do with, well, it does, but the Messiah, Ben Joseph and Second Nephi 3. Yeah, I've actually seen this before, too. The fruit of thy loins in Judah and the fruit of thy loins will write and out of our weaknesses. And Joseph prophesied the seer the Lord. blessed. Yeah, this is the seer Joseph coming from Joseph of Egypt. And yeah. so there you have it. Book of Mormon, the most correct book, verifying that Joseph of Egypt in the ancient Bible had this prophecy of Joseph Smith. But wicked and conniving men later took it out. Yeah. We, granted, we don't have that manuscript evidence in, of Genesis yet, but who knows? I mean, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Masoretic. Come on, where's your faith? Yeah. So they just happened to lose
1: those, just those pieces that refer to specifically Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon. You know, Isaiah twenty-nine. Yeah, um,
0: and, but, and the reason why, Charlie, is because they were jealous that it wasn't them. And so you've got to take out the stuff for Joseph Sweet.
1: Yeah. Makes sense.
0: I'm just saying, when you think this stuff out, it it all works, you know, (laughs) really crazily. That's how it works. Yeah. All right. Okay, you guys. Any other questions? Hold on. Let me now. I got to scroll down. Woo. This is The Greatest Show. Oh, Doug, Vincent, thank you. You're very kind. Uh, Mark Schultz, my friend and new brother. Uh, We are working to getting Mark on our show, just so you know, uh, and we will do so. So just to let you know, we have some superstars in our chat, and I'm stone cold serious. Mark Schultz is a world champion wrestler as well as an Olympic champion wrestler. And we, yes, we honor you here, my friend. And we will honor you with coming on my show soon. So, oh, hey, T.O. is here. And I love T.O. He's also been on my show. B.Y.P. How? Oh, here we go. Let me put this up for you, Charlie. Uh, Byp, how has Charlie's book been received by LDS apologist scholars? Any pushback? Are you treated with kindness? Of course, he's treated with kindness. I have him on my show. Oh wait!
1: <laughs> yeah, so here's one LDS apologist treating me. Oh, ex-apologist.
0: <laughs> it's just two little letters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How are you? How are you being received, Do you... That's a good question, actually. Um, I. I
1: don't tend to mingle in circles where I'm not
0: received well. <laughs> so well I avoid you just question. saw the IQ of a genius. That's been my problem, is I do mingle with those guys, <laughs> and I waste a lot of time arguing over idiocies like, why can't I call you Mormon? Well, I want to be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saintians. Yeah. So I do mingle with uh,
1: a lot of LDS scholars who are very curious. I mean, you know, most LDS scholars that I would call real legit scholars uh, don't take themselves too seriously. And they recognize that there's a lot we don't know. We don't, and we don't know, even a small fraction of what we think we know, you know, or what the church professes to know. Absolutely. So I think there's a lot more epistemic humility among most scholars to where um, they're, they're pretty easy going. They're, they're, they're not so uh, dogmatic about a particular position.
0: No, that, that, that's very nice to know that that is beginning to occur, seriously. Um, yeah, that's very nice. Um, there was a, another one uh by my good friend Moksha Raver. I love this guy. Uh could you say something about the White Horse prophecy? <laughs> that isn't is. that's all you have to say, Charlie. Uh, sorry,
1: not my book. <laughs> that, yeah. Uh, and and you know, I used to back in the decades ago that used to be a really popular thing the white horse prophecy i used to read all the materials on it but you know that's just that has not been one of my
0: pet pursuits
1: i'll just say that
0: thank you doug vincent for your marvelous contribution that's very nice i wanted to recognize you keep the fantastic guests coming i will you included, pal. You're not done being on my show either, Doug. But thank you. That's very kind. Um, I, I thought that
1: uh, Erie Canal episode was really spectacular. Wasn't
0: that fun? D- D- Doug did such excellent research on that. I mean, he just worked his butt off on that. I was I was deeply impressed. So yeah, and I and I want him on too because we've got other subjects that Doug really is brilliant at and so this will be fun to you know it's kind of fun just getting a whole variety of stuff isn't it yeah. it really is so okay let's see what else oh I'm not going to talk about Desnat I don't give a damn about Desnat <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> whoops I said I wasn't going to say anything um, okay let's see uh, let me see I thought I saw one other one. Well, anyway, uh, we, we, we have had, oh, oh yeah, I got T.O.'s. We, we have had a, uh, Charlie, I've enjoyed this one as much as any of them. I mean, I, I really like how you get into the, you did a good job covering the broadness, but you really got into some good specifics. I love that kind of, uh, research and discussion because cause it's important to yeah. I mean you know the devil's in the details that's it not is. cliche that that's for real you get you get to the Greek and look what you did with that word restoration. Well that's pretty dang important, right? So I
1: love that. So yeah, it's easy to just generalize and say, well, you know, does the Bible really prophesy of this stuff? But if you go in and you you look at individually, what are all these prophecies that the church is claiming are saying a particular thing? Uh, What are they actually saying when read in context? And what's the scholarly perspective on them? And wow, it's eye-opening.
0: It is. It is. That's why I encourage you guys truly this is such a fun book for that reason. This is my doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology. Um, and there are very, very, very many subjects. It's not It's not just a one-subject book. He it, it covers like 30 different areas, 30 different ideas, doctrines, or historical interpretations and themes that really are significantly different with the way the world looks at this stuff as compared to how, but uh, uh, compared to how Mormonism has, but, and, and I'm agreeing with Charlie here because I've been kind of talking behind the scenes with a few people too. And it's one reason why Dan and I want to get together and do our series. And we're going to have some other people on them and have Trevin. Uh, I know T.O. and I have some more series to do uh, where the scholarship is kind of, I'm going to say this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Charlie, but I'm hoping I'm seeing that there is a better maturity to the scholarship uh, from the Mormon end, meaning, for instance, we now have uh, Mormon scholars like Thomas Wayman who has actually translated the New Testament now and, and I bought his book, I want to do this New Testament commentary series which I'm so far behind on now because I'm having way too much fun doing my BYP responds stuff <laughs> but um, yeah this idea that now they're beginning to actually translate the scriptures and they are being uh, Trevin Hatch is able to go to the Jewish culture when it comes to Jesus, etc., cetera, and draw different conclusions than what the Sunday school manuals do. And he's not getting in trouble. Uh, he's actually being praised for it and very properly so. So they're doing a better honor for the, the elevation of the BYU image is how I would say it simply because they're not so stuck doing faith promoting stuff That's that we right. all know basically and I I I apologize in advance to any Mormon who's offended, but guys, it's it's late enough in the day. We know most of us just bull roar. The faith promoting stuff. Come on, give us a little bit more credit. We've done our homework. And part of our homework, seriously, is the man I have on my screen right here with this book. I say that very sincerely. So, Charlie, I appreciate you, man. I love you. You're awesome. We will be doing this again shortly, you guys. Next weekend, uh, that's the announcement I wanted to say. Next weekend, I'm going to be down in St. George at Thrive Over Sunday, I'm going to try to get on live. It depends on their Wi-Fi connections or whatever. If not, I won't be doing a Radio radio, radio Free Mormon. Radio Free Mormon and I are going to get together and do some lives while we're there, too, I hope. Uh, But we're going to be pretty busy. He's he's quite popular, so people are going to mob him like the crowds did Jesus. But I'm going to try next week to do a, a, a Thrive Live. Hey. Mm. that'd be cool if not please forgive me i'll try to get everything as much as i can recorded and when i get back monday i'll be back late monday and then tuesday i'll begin working on it so i'll start posting it sometime next week but keep an eye open on sunday night just in case i can actually make this or sunday Sunday might even be better. Although Radio Free Mormon is the final speaker at Thrive, and I don't want to be doing a live interrupting him while he's off there gallivanting on the podium, receiving accolades and applause. So anyway, I'm just letting you know, there there could be some iffy things, probably not, maybe so. Uh, We'll see. I will try my very golly gosh darndest to... uh, Put up some material, so that's how it works. Thank you again, Charlie. Appreciate it. Do you have anything you'd like to to be a- with? Uh, no, I've just uh, enjoyed
1: being on, and uh, good luck in your trip down south
0: next Yeah, I, I think it'll be fun. It will. It'll be fun to get to a little bit warmer place for a little bit. Yes. A, yeah. What's the temperature there? You're there now, aren't you? It was in the 60s today. Oh, wow. I'm taking my tank top and shorts. That's suntan weather right there. Yeah. All right. Okay, you guys. We love you all. Uh, We appreciate everybody in the audience. It's been a fun audience. Uh, We have had a great time expounding on the scriptures in sincerely a meaningful way so thank you so much again dr harrell we will be getting back together soon for more exegesis and scriptural learning so